It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Humans alive today are dealing with enormous challenges like climate change, political polarization, and growing inequality. None of these problems can be solved by one person acting alone, but how do we get everyone on the same page? We are such an individualistic society. Our uh, schools and our workplaces train us to think and work and learn as individuals, but to meet this moment, we really need to learn how to think together better. Counteracting individualism may sound like an overwhelming task, but researchers have found that surprisingly simple actions can unite people into a functional group. Giving people a common goal, for instance, or just having them all do the same physical movements can create bonds and shared identity. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. NYU psychology professor Jay Van Bavel joins science writer Annie Murphy-Paul for today's conversation. Relying heavily on contemporary research, they explain how working in groups makes us smarter and healthier in all kinds of ways. And they give us tips on how to foster positive group dynamics. The discussion is moderated by The New Yorker writer Charles Duhigg. Here's Duhigg. So we have a room full of people. Yeah. We know that they want, we want to become connected. Mm-hmm. Tell us what to do. Yeah, okay, well, so psychologists actually talk about a concept uh, that they, they call groupiness, which is, uh, describes the process by which a group of, a, a assemblage of individuals becomes an entity, you know, a group that they feel that they're one being in a sense. And there's a bunch of ways to uh, produce that feeling of groupiness. One is, believe it or not, synchronized movement. And uh, you'll see that a lot of these ways of creating groupiness are actually pretty, they tap into some pretty um, primitive, almost visceral kind of uh, um, capacities of, of, of our nature as human beings, which makes sense because we've had to work together to get things done for millennia. And so even as we're looking to work together in this you know, knowledge centric environment and bring all our various kinds of expertise together, um, we have to kind of rely on these more very basic and primitive and visceral human capacities. So one of these, as I said, is synchronized movement, which you see in, uh, you know, like uh, religious rituals, you see it in military drills where people are marching in in time, you see it. and even just something like taking a walk together, when people walk together, they tend to fall into synchronous rhythm. And research shows that they end up um, communicating and collaborating better because this, these, this bodily signal has given them uh, a basis for, for connection that they didn't have if they, if they weren't moving in time together. So if it's okay, I think maybe we should do a little synchronized Okay, you guys ready? Okay. okay, everybody on your feet. Okay, put your arms up. Reach way up high, stretch. Now we're going to go to the right and then to the left. There's one lady who's doing it the opposite, which I really like. <laughs> and uh, what else can we do that would be synchronized? Yeah, that's, this is great because, you know, um, one thing that happens in like rave dance parties is that people achieve that kind of ecstasy where they feel like they're all one. And it's because their bodies are moving in time in the same way at the same time. 
Okay, you feel it? All right. We can <laughs> <laughs> See, it's not only a lecture, it's a calisthenics. You get to, this is great. This is great. Thank you all for participating. Yeah. Okay, so, so our first lesson is to try and find the synchronous. And I believe that, like, there's been a lot of studies that have actually looked at neural synchrony, that when we mm -hmm. move together, when we perform pieces of music together, even when we hum together, that we'll see our, or if we can see inside our brains, we'll actually see our brain patterns begin to synchronize we'll see our eyes dilate at the same at, with each other. We'll see electrical impulses along our skin. Our heart rates will over time match. So hopefully you're, you're feeling a little bit bonded, more bonded to the person next to you. Okay, Jay, now it's to you. Um, I have two questions for you. Number one, do you have another tip about what we should do to feel like a group? And then number two, Tell me what happened to you in an elevator. Okay, <laughs> um, okay so in, in addition to synchrony and physical synchrony, another big thing is creating a common goal. And so I'll give you an example of this. In the lab, where I've run studies where we connect people with um, EEG caps, you can measure their brain activity as they work together. And when we create physical synchrony in these groups, and they're working towards a common goal where they're all competing against other groups, that's when you see the highest levels of brain synchrony. Their brains all synchronize, so they're starting to fire and get literally on the same wavelength. Um, the other thing you see is they cooperate more, so they share more resources that benefit the group, um, and they get smarter, so their collective intelligence goes up. They're better at problem solving. Um, and so you really need, it really helps to have a couple of these things if you really wanna create a shared group identity. Um, and then the story of the elevator. So we're kind of, hopefully we're kind of at the tail end of the pandemic. Early in the pandemic, I went through an experience where I was teaching from home. So I teach introduction to psychology, a class at New York University to 350 students. And I was teaching it from my kitchen. One day I had to pick up my kids from daycare, bring them home, and then I had to race up my elevator to teach. I was just about to get there on time, and I was coming up the elevator and it, and it crashed, it stuck. You know that moment where it drops and you feel like your stomach dropping like on a roller coaster? Um, thankfully it didn't, it didn't crash all the way, but it got stuck between floors. And so I was trapped there with my kids. And we called in uh, to the doorman to ask for them to send somebody to repair it. But while we were stuck, um, after I calmed down my kids, of course, I realized my students were gonna be in a panic because it was the day before the midterm and they were all waiting on the call for me to join. So I was able to get enough reception on my phone to call in and I had to teach the class um, from the elevator while my poor kids sat there and, and watched me teach it. And so this was a pretty, at the time it seemed pretty normal just because the world has been so abnormal that every little thing seems like not that different from the last crazy thing you did. Um, but something really interesting happened. I mean, to me it just seemed like trying to scramble to help teach the class. Um, but I, I noticed by the end of the semester that that student group was more bonded and more engaged in the lectures and the class and gave me higher evaluations than I'd ever had before in 12 years of teaching, I think. And so it was a moment where when you go through something together, a strong experience, that is also something that is really powerful for bonding the group. Of course, a strong experience can pull you apart if you have bad leadership, but a strong experience, something powerful emotionally that you all go through together can be something uh, that can be a shared understanding of who you are and it makes your group distinctive. And so that was another example of something that can bring groups together and create a shared sense of identity. That's really, and let me ask something about what you were saying about goals, because it occurs to me that, and I'm wondering if this is right, that you had the same goal as your students did in that case, right? Yeah. You clearly wanted to educate them and get, get your message across. They clearly wanted to learn. They're watching the shaky camera and, and mm -hmm. their professor is sweat, I'm sure, is running down your face. <laughs> So that's a goal that you guys, to, to, to the first thing you said, that you can kind of find some group identity. 
But what does a goal need to be? Like if we're talking to a group like this, if we want to become better friends and, and hopefully the roof isn't going to fall in on us, we're not going to have an adverse experience together. What kind of goal, what does a goal need to be to help us bond? Yeah, so a goal can be something that you're working towards. It can be competing for a resource. It can be like aiming toward a, towards accomplishing something. So maybe in America, one of the big examples of that was the space race, where people felt a common shared sense of purpose. And it was really something that was inspiring to a lot of people from different generations and walks of life. Um, and so it can be something that you're aspiring to. Um, it helps if you're competing against another group. But that's not necessary. So a lot of research has found that as long as people feel like they're working towards accomplishing something together, they don't even really need another group to compete against to get a lot of the same benefits. That's interesting. And we are going to evaluate who makes better friends with the person sitting next to you <laughs> after this. So there's a little bit of competition going on. Mm -hmm. um, could I add something? Yeah, no, please do. Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, I would just say that in addition to a, a common goal uh, or a shared goal, it can be really helpful to have a sense of shared fate that like the outcomes of what of what you do what you uh, what you do together affect you all in similar ways so i write in my book the the extended mind about um um about a period in the 1970s when schools were being desegregated and the and the school system in austin texas was having problems with kids um being in conflict kids from different groups not, not getting along and so they brought in a very well-known um, social psychologist named Elliot Aronson and said, what, what, what can you do here? How can you, how can you smooth this out so that these kids can be educated together and learn together? And he went in there with a bunch of his graduate students and first just observed about what was going on in this school that was experiencing all this roiling tension. And what he saw was that the kids were competing against each other for the, the teacher's attention, for good grades, you know, they, they were, it was really person against person and group, group against group. And what he did was, I, it, it's, it's such an amazing intervention that he came up with. He created something called the Jigsaw Classroom. And this was um, a way of teaching in which he would create groups of students, often, you know, from, drawn from different socioeconomic or sociodemographic groups, and then he would say, you guys are going to work on this project together. Each of you gets a piece of the project. And then and you learn about, say you're learning about um, Eleanor Roosevelt's life and her work in the, in the peace movement. Uh, this person over here will, this student will learn about uh, her childhood. This person will learn about uh, her time in the White House. This person will learn about her work in the peace movement. And then you each have to teach each other about the part that only you know. And then, and it, the, just the very structure of the jigsaw classroom makes it so you have to be a good listener, you have to cooperate, you have to care about the other person in order to do well yourself. And your, your fates really are bonded together in such a way that um, you're not competing against each other. The, very, the structure uh, of, the, of the way that this lesson was taught creates a shared fate. And, and Interestingly, it not, this, the jigsaw um, classroom model not only uh, improved learning for students, it also really helped to ameliorate some of these tensions that had been That's really um, brought about during, during desegregation. And, and I want to open it up to questions. If, if anyone has any questions, feel free to raise your hand while you're thinking of them. So let me ask this, because, I, Annie, you just t touched on something that 
there's a lot of good to groups, right? Mm -hmm. But we also think about groups in a negative sense, right? We think about groupthink, mm -hmm. we think about in-groups and out-groups. Traditionally, when we've seen, particularly over the last two years, we've seen a real reckoning over what some groups who have access to resources and privilege and don't share that widely and groups who feel like they've been excluded. How should we think about this? How, how, do, we, how do we be boosters of groups without falling into these traps that say, well, you define a group by who's not in it sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and we become suspicious of those people. Yeah. yeah, so I would say there's two key parts of, of healthy groups. One is that people feel a sense of identification. In other words, they care about the group. Um, and, and then the more they care about a group, people's behavior will be, be, be determined by what makes them a good group member. And so the, the word for that is called social norms. They start looking towards other group members to figure out what the norms are. And now, in groups, you can have healthy or very destructive social norms. Norms can be about prejudice and discrimination. They can be about uh, suppressing dissent and blind loyalty. Or they can be about constructive conversations, debate, dissent, new ideas. They can be about embracing different people and different perspectives and be inclusive. And so what you find is that the more people identify with a group, the more likely they are to align themselves with the norms. And so that's why it's really important for leaders to establish very clearly what the norms are. And also for everyday people, because often the person you look for to determine the norm is the person who's most like you in the group. And so you don't have to be a leader to influence the person who has like a cubicle next to yours um, because they're often looking to you to figure out how to behave. And so those are the powerful ways that norms uh, shape the behavior of group members. L let me ask something of the audience actually. How many of you belong to a group that you feel like is very, very important to you? You would you'd give money to it. You spend time with them even though it, it's inconvenient. It's, it's most of the room. And how many of you feel like you're leaders in that group? You see yourself... So it's interesting, a good number of hands, but fewer hands go up. Is that right? I mean, I, when we think of groups, is part of our training to think of ourselves as a default that we are a leader, whether, whether we have formal authority or not, whether this is something that we have been given or embraced, that we contribute to that social norm and we have a responsibility to shape it? I would say we, each of us has influence, even when we're not in, a, in a, an official role as a leader. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think that people have leadership roles. So, so one of my favorite studies on this looked at interventions to reduce bullying in classrooms uh, in a number of schools throughout New Jersey. And what the researchers did is they found the most effective strategy for reducing bullying is to get a bunch of uh, uh, you know, proselytizers involved. And how they identified the most effective people to spread the message were people who were the hubs of social networks. And you might be thinking, well, this is the popular kids. But it didn't necessarily mean the popular kids. It might be a kid who's like friends with the people in the band, friends with the people in the math club, friends with the people on the football team. And so they end up being a hub of a lot of different social communities in that group. And so if you get them on board with a message about reducing bullying and being a, a, an effective bystander if you see it happening, other people are much more likely to buy into the message because they have a connection to that person. Yeah. And so you might not be in an official position of power. If you are, you have a lot of influence. But you also have a lot of influence if you're a connector, if you're like a hub between different uh, people or different social parts of the social network. Yeah. And Annie, you, you wrote in your book about the fact that you called it the extended mind, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, because there's the mind that's in our head, but there's also the mind that is our body, there's the mind that our groups we belong to, there's the mind that is the environment we sit in. Exactly. How does that, I mean, the, let me ask you this. 
is this the right room for us to be making friends in? <laughs> yeah, so I should say that the theory of the extended mind is, is not my idea. It's, I borrowed it from two philosophers named Andy Clark and David Chalmers. Um, and their, their argument is that the mind doesn't stop at the skull. It actually extends beyond the skull into the rest of our bodies, into our physical environment, into our relationships with other people. And I would actually say that this, in, this auditorium is perhaps not ideal, um, just because, for one thing, look at us. We're raised up above everybody else. People are in rows rather than facing each other. Um, I think maybe we could, if we, we could come together maybe and, and do a redesign in a way that um, created a, a setting in which we were more likely to connect with each other rather than just be givers of information and passive receivers. I, I absolutely agree. I, and I think that this is a, the fact that we've been talking for the last 10 or 15 minutes and it hasn't been a conversation, I think is largely a function of mm -hmm. how this space is set up. Mm -hmm. Are there any, with that said, are there any questions? Yeah, in the back. I'm gonna, if you guys don't mind, and I apologize in advance if I misgender anyone, it, I'm, I'll say the person in the blue shirt, but I might also say ma'am or sir, because I'm old. Um, Rooms in the building. I just wanted to make a quick comment that yeah. um, a number of the rooms in the adjoining buildings are all shaped in a hexagon mm. so that everyone is equal. Mm. Yeah. And that was the theory behind the design of the buildings around here. Yeah. Not no. necessarily this one, perhaps, but. And I think the tents that are outside, I've noticed that as I've been moderating in the tents, we tend to get more questions. Mm. And I think it's because it feels a little bit less formal. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a great point. It's a really interesting one and something we don't think about. Mm -hmm. Anyone? Who, yes, here in the, in the salmon shirt. They're bringing you a microphone just so, so everyone can hear. How are the job descriptions for connector and leader different? Mm. Interesting question. Yes. So, so you can be an informal leader if you're a connector, but usually leader means you have a position of power or authority. And if you have that, then people look to you. So research shows that if someone's in an authority position, other people's visual attention goes to them. And they're under a lot more scrutiny even than they realize. Um, and so that's what happens when you have a position of power or authority. Um, but you can gain status, even if you're not in a leadership position, if you're uh, a trusted member of the group, if you have insider information. Um, in some organizations, this happens with like the executive assistant. That person ends up being the gatekeeper, but they often know a lot of what's going on uh, broadly through the organization. And so um, you can be a connector and be influential even if you're not in an official position of power. Yeah. And to build on that, you know, so I'm working on a book right now about, um, yeah, down here if you don't mind, about um, the science of conversation and communication, which really is the question of how do, why are some people better at connecting to other people, making mm -hmm. that connection? Mm -hmm. And, and I've come, there's this, this interesting thing I was introduced to. So think for a minute, if you've had a bad day, like you've just, it's been a rough day, and you're gonna call a friend, and you know, friend or person, you know just talking to that person is gonna make you feel better. Like, they do something special on the phone. They, raise your hand if you've got a person in your life like that. Like, yeah. okay, almost everyone did, right? Like, we're like, this is pretty common. Now here's my question. Is that person the most dynamic leader you know? Hmm. Are they, are, they, are they the funniest person you know? Now what we do know from studies is if you were to watch their, observe, observe their behavior, they probably laugh more than your other friends. They probably laugh at what you say more than your other friends. And I will tell you something, you're not that funny. You're not <laughs> laughing, you're not laughing, but they make you feel funny, right? They do a good job, it feels genuine. And I think to this point, and tell me if you guys disagree, there are these people who are great connectors 
And we don't think of them as leaders. In fact, sometimes they're good connectors because we don't think of them as leaders. Charles, do, they, do you find that they have the habit of validating what, what the other person has said, that that's a key part of There's a huge amount of validation. There's a huge amount of asking questions, particularly deep questions very quickly, right? Um, mm -hmm. Asking folks things about how they feel or giving them a chance to state their values or their emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think to that point, mm -hmm. it's, um, and I, I was just reading a paper this morning by Julia Minson and, and Mike Yeomans, who I know you guys know, mm -hmm. um, about what's known as conversational receptiveness, that we do these things that make the other person feel like we're really listening to and, them. Right, that they're heard. Yeah. They've been heard, that's so important. Here, yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, how you involve introverts into effective groups. I mean, many of us are in workplace settings where we're forming groups all the time, and there's, a, there's an issue about introversion and also just lower status. So two, those two aspects. Yeah, so I'll give you an example of this. I think that's a really important question because that's half of the people in any group usually. Um, so one thing is that if you have an environment where it's a free-for-all and the loudest person can kind of hold the floor, um, you're creating a situation that's harder for introverts or lower status people to speak up. And so there's a couple factors. One of them is groups that have greater psychological safety tend to perform better because they create a safe space for all kinds of people to speak up. And often that's the people who are, have divergent perspectives or are newcomers to a group or a lower status. Um, but I would also say like the way I think about uh, designing groups is through processes. And so one way I do it in the groups that I oversee and run is do anonymous votes. And that means a lower status or introverted person has just as much power as the highest power person in the group or the most dominant or extroverted. And so it's a way to give those people equal voice and decision making, even if they might not be comfortable. Um, another thing I do in, in my lab where I run it is I often will have a Google document. So people can give feedback. They are, might be uncomfortable speaking up in front of the group, but they can give just as much feedback in a, in, a, in a format that is more comfortable and easy for them and has less social pressure attached to it, um, and often is just as insightful or more insightful. And so that way you can collate the feedback from a large group or a group that has you know, people differing, differing in status or power. So I would think about like designing processes that leverage the insights and intelligence and perspectives of those people. Another process that might be helpful is reversing the order in which people usually speak in a meeting. Often it's the most senior, the, the leader of the group that sets out the agenda and says, this is what I think. What, now what do you think? You know? And so after, at that point, the less uh, senior, senior, the less experienced, the um, more introverted members of the group are, are probably mostly going to go along with, with the example set by that senior leader. Whereas if you start with the least senior people, the less experienced people, the younger people, they get to speak first and that changes the whole dynamic of the situation. And it's worth noting, so at Amazon, they actually mandate that. So Amazon meetings must start with the most junior person in the room speaking up and then usually work your way up from there for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanna get back to psychological safety because I think that's an important thing. I saw a hand go up, yes, it's right here. I, I would like to uh, take the theoretical stuff that you've been giving us and apply it to our, our movement to handle global warming. I mean, this is a jigsaw puzzle that's not going to fit on my cardboard table. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gigantic and it's international. Uh, how do you take the theories that you're talking about and apply it to a world movement that requires everybody in some way to participate? And let me break that into two questions, if you don't mind. Because um, I think that there's a first question, which is how do we get everyone around the same goal? 
Because there's certainly some people who feel like that's not a goal. Mm. And then when we do, how do we, how, do we create, how do we create that conversation in a way that doesn't polarize us into camps? Do you guys have any thoughts? I'll go, for, I'll go first. I have a couple of thoughts. Um, so first of all, attitudes towards global warming are polarized, but only in two or three countries. So I've looked at the data around the world. The US, I think Australia, and there's one or two other countries. In most countries, it's actually not politically polarized. So, but, but the problem is it's polarized in countries that tend to be high carbon emitters. And so that's why polarization is a difficult challenge about getting people on the same wavelength and sharing the same reality. Uh, and so that is a huge challenge in this country. Polarization is a, a huge challenge for lots of things. Um, and there's a lot of disinformation around these issues. Um, and then I would say another thing is, I'll give you an example of a study we're, we're running. I got some data on this week. We're about to run a study in 80 countries looking at 10 different types of messages to see what's more effective at getting people to change their attitudes, to spread the word, and to engage in actual behavior around climate change. And, and we only have data from 700 people. So we did ran a pilot study this week. The two interventions, the two uh, ways that you can frame up the issue of climate change, it seemed to actually change people's behavior and willingness to share and mobilize others, are identity-based norms, signaling that we can do it, other people in your group are doing it. Um, because a lot of people don't realize that there is actually a growing and shared belief that climate change is a problem, uh, because the way that the media projects a lot of it is that there's a debate. Mm -hmm. um, rather than that there's a, a huge consensus and there's a small number of people who oppose it. And so by presenting it as a norm that many people actually care about and are willing to work towards, that actually incentivizes people's behavior and also their willingness to like, spread the word on social media and their own social networks. Um, and then the other one is thinking about yourself, uh, your identity in the future. That it, people often are thinking about themselves in the moment, which can make you very short-sighted. And it's, it's kind of like the challenge of dieting, which is like you eat the extra dessert now, even though like you, you'd rather be healthy you know, a year from now. Um, you have to help people get people to think about what are the consequences for them 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And when they imagine that, that seems to be a powerful motivator for them to actually be willing to take action in the moment. That's really interesting. Annie, did you have? Yeah, my, my thoughts went to the research on uh, collective intelligence, which is something that, that Jay mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, obviously climate change is a wickedly complex problem. No one person is going to solve this problem. We need to, to be, come together in groups and think, think um, intelligently, more intelligently than any one member of the group. And so what the research on collective intelligence has found is that, um, Groups that are sort of smarter than any one individual in the group um, tend to be very psychologically attuned and sensitive. Um, they tend to give, um, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, they tend to give equal airtime to each of the people in the group. And they tend to have more women in the group, which I think is interesting, um, in part because probably because women are socialized to be more psychologically sensitive and attuned. Um, so I think. We, you know, we are we are such an individualistic society. Our our uh, schools and our workplaces um, train us to think and work and learn as individuals. But the, to meet this moment, we really need to learn how to think together better. And I think that the research can really help us do that. Yeah, I'll add one thing to that that I think is a study I talk about in my book is in places where attitudes towards climate change is polarized. Leading with your identity, your political identity, turns to be a barrier to understanding facts. And so there was a, a great study where they had people look at data on climate change from NASA. 
And as long as they removed their political identity from it, so you didn't know if the people you were talking to were Republicans or Democrats, mm -hmm. you came to better collective understandings. You were more collectively intelligent. Mm -hmm. The moment that you put a D or an R in front of their name, people lost trust and they just polarized their belief about what the data said. Mm. They actually never arrived as consensus and they actually on average were less intelligent. Mm. They arrived at more inaccurate answers in those groups. And so you have to think about, sometimes identity we're talking about it in healthy ways, but there are identities that can be hard for people to look beyond and generate the type of group dynamics that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. and this is a really interesting part about identities. Anyone else with, with, a, with a question? Right here. Yeah. What, what are the pros and cons to the metaverse and communication? I do a lot of work with youth and, and uh, social emotional learning and, and the metaverse is coming, but uh, what are the good things and the bad things about the metaverse communication? <laughs> you guys thought about this at all? <laughs> I'll take a stab at that. I write a lot about education and the science of learning and I think we had this giant natural experiment in what it's like for kids to be taught by screens for uh, a year and a half or two years and I think it was very largely a failure. And I think it reminded those, any of us who needed reminding, um, because there's been a lot of you know, effervescence around educational technology and uh, kids learning uh, from screens and digitally, that the essence of learning and education is a connection with another human being. So I am, I am personally skeptical that the metaverse um, is gonna do much good for education. Um, Although, one, I'll, I'll mention one, one, one uh, particular area where I think there's some really exciting possibilities, which um, speaks to the research of how we form our ideas of what's appropriate for people like us by looking around. Say you're the only girl in your physics class, you know, or you're the only African-American in your college level, high school uh, English class. Um, in the metaverse, your, your classroom could be populated with lots of other people like you. You know, you, you could create the world that we want to see eventually in the metaverse and in so, being bring, in so doing bring that into, into, um, into reality. That, that would be the idea. That would be, to me, one of the benefits or one of the beneficial uses of something like the metaverse. Yeah, I'll, I'll scaffold to that. And, and point to another issue is that a lot of conversation and, and interaction and group discussion is now happening virtually. Not necessarily in the metaverse, but like Zoom calls and team calls. And, and we've all been doing this for the last two and a half years. I think it's uh, probably saved probably hundreds of thousands, millions of lives. We've had the technological capacity for this. But what are the consequences? So I'll give you two of my most compelling studies. One was done with Microsoft employees. And they looked at how they interacted with other people before the pandemic, during you know, those first few months and then followed up with them. And they tracked all their emails, their calendars, their texts, because all on their own platform. And they analyzed 61,000 employees. And what they found is people were just as effective at their, their job. They worked just as well with their immediate teammates uh, working remotely. So it seemed to be fine and, and pretty efficient because then now they don't have to commute. The company doesn't have to like, you know, pay for office space for them, you know, uh, theoretically. But there was a cost. And it wasn't really observed while people weren't aware of it until they looked at the data, which was that people became more siloed. And so they stopped interacting with people who weren't part of their immediate team. And so you lost those kind of bumping into people at the water cooler or at lunches. And that turns out to be that little friction and connection with people not like you tends to be where a lot of innovation gets triggered. Um, and so I, I think that that's one of the things a lot of 
organizations from universities to corporations, educational environments are thinking about right now how to harness technology so people can maybe work remotely, you can capitalize on more diversity of talent. Um, but at the same time, I think there's this like hidden cost about the social connective aspects. Uh, and another study out of Finland analyzed 5,000 employees and they found the other consequence was trust. Over time, people slowly lost trust in their coworkers mm. because you didn't have the opportunity to build the social capital by joking around and, and connecting with people on a human level because you kind of jumped right into meetings. Mm. And so I think that you know, going into the future, we have a chance. I think it's kind of like a big reset. We have a chance to imagine a future of work, a future of education, a future of, of all kinds of conferences and events. I've done a lot virtually, hybrid, in person. And I think that there needs to be a real serious conversation about how to harness the benefits of technology, whether it's in the metaverse or Zoom calls, um, and how to avoid the downsides by offsetting them with in-person interactions like this. I think you need enough of that to avoid siloing yourself, creating your own little echo chamber in whatever type of environment you're in, um, and avoid having these kind of trust spirals where you don't trust somebody, they kind of sense you don't trust them, so they don't reciprocate back with you. Now you really don't trust them. And so those things can be um, contagious and problematic in all kinds of environments. And, and I think to that point, let me ask, how many folks in this room had kids that did remote learning? <laughs> okay, good number of you. How many of you felt like that was a good experience for either you or your kids? Okay, no hands went up. Now, let me ask the same question. How many of you did remote work yourself? You stayed home from work. How many of you thought that was pretty good? Well, like you didn't mind staying home from work. <laughs> so the interesting thing to me to, about this is that I have the exact same experience with my kids. I thought like these kids have got to get to school. We have to, they have to socialize with each other. And, and they did not like remote learning. But when I ask them if they want to go back to school, they say things like, I kind of like sleeping in. It's nice to see you at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. When I have a random question about a video game, you're always around and I can answer it. <laughs> And to this point, I think you're exactly right. We do have to think about it deliberately, but it is interesting that our lived experience suggests that going in every day isn't the right thing to do, although for our kids, we think it is. And I think there is a gap there. Mm. And, and let me ask, this kind of gets to this question around groups, because I think oftentimes one of the things that happens is that we think this is something that works for me, but I want another group to behave differently, right? I should, I should have the right to watch whatever I want on TV, but I really don't want anyone in Ohio watching Fox News. If I can, I'll blank it out. What do we do about that? What do we do about this situation? Because this seems to be at the root of some of the polarization that comes from groups, where I can say I want a different standard for a group than I want for myself. Annie, can you well, <laughs> that word polarization makes you think, Jay, that's, okay. that's for you. Let me think about it for a moment. Okay, um, so I think that this is where you have to think you know, much more deeply about principles. Um, what is the underlying principle? So let's say you, you, you're running a country or running an organization. You have to think carefully about what your principle is and then hold everybody to the same standard. And so this is, it turns out this is a really important part of leadership. And it, it, we write about, we have a chapter on leadership in our book. And one of the th things I think a lot of leaders made a big mistake during the pandemic is they had a double standard. That they said people, for example, in the UK, this was a big problem where they said people had to lock down. And then you found out that the, the prime minister and, and the cabinet were breaking the rules and hosting parties. And that's the first thing you can do to erode trust if you're a leader. Um, the, the, most, the form that's most effective is holding yourself and embodying the same standards that you want to hold other people to. Otherwise, in politics, how, what happens is you get nonstop calls of hypocrisy. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that on climate change. Um, you'll have like Neil, Neil Young, a famous musician, talk about like climate change and then fly in his private jet to a concert. And understandably, conservatives call him like a, a total hypocrite. 
for that. And so you have to think very carefully about what standards you're going to hold yourself to that you're going to hold other people to. Um, otherwise, people will reject those standards. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Charles, I'm still stuck on what you said about why is it that remote learning was such a disaster for almost all our kids, and yet remote work like works pretty good, right? Like, what? Why is that? And I think it's um, you can. I mean, of course, there are different developmental tasks like that children are are undertaking that we hopefully have completed by the time we're in the workplace. But I think you could also think about it as the difference between what a novice needs and what an expert needs. You know, a novice is learning all these all this implicit knowledge, like stuff that doesn't get said out loud, but it, you, you absorb it by watching and by being in an environment with other people. By the time you're a, a professional, you've, absor you've absorbed a lot of that and you, you can get right down to work with, with some losses, as, as Jay was saying, in terms of trust and um, that, those interactions with people outside your, your particular team. But I think so much of, we want, of what we want kids to learn doesn't get communicated in those video lectures, you know, it's so much about being there and being with people in yeah. a way that we don't, we, we've gotten our fill of that maybe, we don't need that That's so much interesting. anymore. I, I think we have time for one or two more questions. You're right here. Oh. Have there been any um, breakthroughs in techniques to increase connectivity in remote meetings? And similarly, were there any examples of more successful kids' learning experiences over the internet. Hmm. Somebody building a study on that which would be useful. I remember one uh, study I read of a particular uh, online learning program that was um, directed at preschool children, and it involved sending a kit of, of physical materials to, to every child's home, and then the, uh, the teacher would lead the, the students through exercises, working with these um, physical materials. You know, on, everyone would be doing it from their own home and on the screen, but there was something about sharing the physical embodied experience of working with these material objects that really enriched the, um, the experience for kids. And when you think about, a, you know, I was gonna say a typical kindergarten classroom, but really an ideal kindergarten classroom is full of stuff, stuff for kids to look at and touch and manipulate, and their homes might not look like that, you know? So I think just remembering that we're not just, this is my extended brain, uh, my, sorry, my extended mind fixation, but remembering that we're not just brains, we're not just thinking, doing all our thinking up here. We, we think with our bodies, with movement, with social interaction, and the more we can build that into a remote experience, and that is a challenge, the, the better learning will be. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add on to that about the, the, you know, working over Zoom. One of the a new study a couple months ago found that creativity drops. And I saw a bunch of people who are working from home saying, I'm still just as creative. Mm. Well, it, you know, they might feel that way, but they're probably less creative what they would, would, than they would be otherwise. Mm. So I think that's like a very bad way of responding to scientific studies. <laughs> um, but in that study, there, the reason creativity dropped is because your visual attention is focused on the person on the screen. Mm. Whereas in a room, you're looking at all kinds of things and interacting in more dynamic ways. Um, if you simply like uh, shut off the screen and turn off the screen while you're actually brainstorming, people actually, their creativity goes back up. Mm. And so understanding specifically why your creativity is plumbing, plummeting can give you insights into what you can do to mitigate it while retaining this virtual work environment. And so I always hate these things that people try to like, deny the research. It's much better actually to read the research closely and look carefully and figure out, oh yeah, 
Well, here's why. It's because visual attention is, is being cued. And if we can just change that, then we can actually get some of that creativity back. That's never good on Twitter, though. It's much better yeah, on no. Twitter. <laughs> You're a moron. Let's take one last question. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for a really um, great panel. Um, so, so I'm interested a little bit in talking about the down, maybe the downside of group identity, and in particular, um, the tension between um, living in a big, heterogeneous, pluralistic country and the demands that many groups make about exclusivity. And how, are, are there particular, are there particular skills, and I, I work at a college, so are there particular skills that we can help young people develop that will enable them to uh, belong to multiple groups and not, and, and move more freely among different groups so that coalition politics becomes possible again, so that, for example, you don't always have to subscribe to all the same principles in order to work together towards a goal? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. you, you guys have any thought on that? You or me? Okay, so it's mm -hmm. me. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll give two examples. You said you worked at a college? Okay, so I'll give you uh, one of my favorite studies on this. Uh, Sohad Marar ran this study in a college where these are big issues in colleges, of course. And they used, and there's a lot of people trying different strategies and educational uh, interventions in schools to try to like foster a more healthy, pluralistic educational environment. And a lot of, some of them, many of them actually backfired in schools and organizations. Um, one that worked really well was creating or actually unearthing a shared social norm that people valued diversity. And so they found, they did a survey in the campus, I think it was at University of Madison, Wisconsin, and found that something like 80% of people or more uh, on the campus, so almost everybody, the vast overwhelming majority, valued diversity as a principle. And so then they found ways of signaling this to people. And once they signaled that everybody, almost everybody on campus shared this set of values of this pluralistic environment, um, they found that discrimination dropped because people who sometimes are making jokes that are offensive, but they think they're doing it to fit in, mm -hmm. once they learn that that's not what people value, they stop doing that. Mm -hmm. And so people become, are less likely to be the recipients of like subtle forms of, of discrimination. The other thing they found that was actually more impressive was the minority uh, students, underrepresented minority students, their GPA went up and they felt a greater sense of belonging because they realize that they're a part of a group where the overwhelming majority actually supports their presence there and wants them to succeed. And so a lot of times we lead with messages about group conflict that over-exaggerate the degree of conflict, but also you have to understand that they're signaling a norm that's really toxic. They're signaling that discriminate, when you say discrimination's common, you're signaling to some people that it's acceptable or that it's necessary to fit in. And you're also signaling to other people that they're gonna be the, the mass victims of it and they have to interpret ambiguous situations through that lens. So we have to understand that we wanna unearth norms, which many people share in many organizations and institutions, about kind of a, a more diverse, dynamic, pluralistic environment. Andy, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, Groups, human beings do some of their most amazing things in groups, right? But also some of the most horrifying and awful things in groups. And that's such a, 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 tension, a tension that we have to hold in our minds. And one interesting way to think about it is that our impulses as individuals are, are largely pro-social. Like it's really hard to get someone to hurt another person in a lab. We have this natural aversion to hurting other people. And yet we've seen how easily things can get out of control when people are identifying with a group and there can be horrible carnage and, and, um, and destruction that follows from that. So it can be useful to remember 
to get back in touch with our individual identities and the individual identities of the people in the outgroup, the other group. You know, you can learn individuating information about the person in the other group to, to see them more fully as a human being and not just as a representative of the group. And then there's also research that suggests that reflecting on our own personal moral values, getting in touch with our own internal moral compass, can separate us from that sort of group frenzy when people could get caught up in, in, um, in doing things they would never do as uh, on their own. They would never do as individuals. I want to thank all of you for being a member of the group that came to this. I want to thank our panelists. Go forth and uh, make connections. Annie Murphy-Paul is a science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and The Best American Science Writing, among many others. Her latest book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, which was named one of 100 notable books by the New York Times. Jay Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. He directs the Social Identity and Morality Lab and is affiliated with the Stern School of Business, Management, and Organizations Department. He co-authored The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Charles Duhigg is a writer for The New Yorker and author of the bestsellers The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. Previously, he was a reporter for the New York Times where he led the team that won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Journalism for the series I, Economy. Earlier in his career, Duhigg reported for the Los Angeles Times and worked in private equity. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.